everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we've got something a little bit unusual today. Those of you who are watching on video or listening carefully to the audio might detect that there's something a little bit unusual about the presentation as well as the content, which I'll mention in a second. Um, I'm not in the church office today. Unexpectedly, I'm working at home, which means that I'm uh, in the front room of my house uh, on my laptop without all the fancy equipment that's in the church office. So if you can see clearly and hear clearly what I'm saying, uh, then please thank the Lord for the tech guys who will be doing their uh, wizardry in the next uh, few days few days before this podcast is released um, for making this audible and visible. If you can't really hear as clearly as possible, as clearly as usual, uh, or you can't see as well as you'd like to, uh, if the video is a bit blurry, then please accept my apologies. Um, it's uh, my fault, not theirs. Uh, but with that, let's jump into what we want to talk about today, um, which is... Uh, a set of questions that have arisen from some recent teaching at All Saints. Um, uh, those of you who are at All Saints uh, or who uh, listen to our sermons remotely will know that over the last uh, few weeks, actually not the last couple of weeks, but before that, I've been doing some teaching on post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is the eschatological framework which says that uh, following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the church will continue to grow steadily, though with ups and downs, throughout the whole of human history prior to the return of Christ, so that at the return of Jesus, by that time in the future, um, the earth will already be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus will return only when the uh, world has been largely subdued by the gospel and brought to faith in him. That doesn't mean to say that everybody, literally everybody, will be Christian. It does mean to say that you'll be able to look out at the world, at the world and see that the social and political uh, institutional structures of human life will largely have been shaped by uh, the gospel, um, by the repentance that the gospel requires as it's lived out by the people of God as the church grows through history. And if you remember those sermons, I've cited lots and lots of different um, uh, strands of biblical support for this. Actually, one of the most significant is the shape of redemptive history as a whole. But beyond that, there are individual texts that point very strongly in this direction. For example, Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom will be like a rock that becomes a mountain that grows to fill the whole earth. The parables of growth in the Gospels, especially, for example, Matthew 13, where the gospel, uh, sorry, the kingdom is likened to the leaven that's mixed in with the dough and which spreads and permeates the whole dough. So there you start with a tiny little bit, um, like the uh, kingdom started very small with a very small number of disciples. As history progresses, it permeates the whole of human society and leavens it. Uh, or it's like a small seed which grows into a great bush in which all the birds of the air, representing the Gentile nations of the world, find rest in its branches and so on and so forth. So there's plenty of biblical support for that. If you're a little unsure about what I mean or about the biblical support for it, then uh, you can head back and listen to those sermons if you like or uh, get hold of one or two of the books that I recommended. There's a good book by Keith Matheson. There's a, a long, comprehensive, slightly hard work, but good book by Kenneth Gentry. And there are one or two other books. Uh, and I can point you to some resources if you need them. So give me a shout if you can't find any of those. Um, but today what I want to talk about is some questions that arise from uh, a, a post-millennial eschatology when it runs into some texts in the New Testament that seem, on the face of them, to conflict with that vision of history. What are we supposed to do with texts that say, for example that Jesus is coming soon, 
think of Revelation chapter 1 um, or Revelation chapter 3 uh, or Revelation chapter 22 where uh, Jesus says specifically that he's coming soon to John or to the church in Laodicea or whoever else he's talking to. Or what about um, uh, Mark 13 when he says specifically uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. There are certain there's a category of texts in the New Testament which talk about the coming of Christ taking place soon. Well, how can that fit with a post-millennial eschatology if uh, the, what post-millennialism requires is a long period of time extended throughout history for the kingdom to grow and so on? Then there's a second set of texts which raises another set of related questions. Texts which say that the church will experience great suffering during the church age. And again, um, Mark 13 is a good example of this. Uh, also 2 Timothy 3, terrible times in the last days and so on. So there's another set of texts. How does that fit with post-mill eschatology? If we're wanting to say that the church is going to grow, society is going to be shaped steadily more and more by Christian teaching, how would that fit with the idea of the terrible times for the church and the church suffering and it being terrible uh, to, to experience that, verging on martyrdom perhaps in some cases for the church? And that then relates to a third set of texts, which is really, I guess, a subcategory of the second one. The substantial opposition to the gospel, which is specifically spoken of in some biblical texts. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, for example. How does that fit with post-mill eschatology? Because you'd think that uh, that would uh, the growth of the gospel around the world would, would require the widespread acceptance of the gospel, not widespread, widespread opposition to it. So here we've got a problem, you see. I've suggested on the basis of a large swathe of biblical texts, a vision of history, post-millennialism, which uh, 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 consists of, I guess, a, uh, a, a widespread, steady, with ups and downs, growth of the kingdom through a, a long period of time before Christ returns. And then we've got texts in the New Testament which say, no, no, that's not right. Jesus is coming soon and the church is going to suffer and experience hostility to the gospel that it proclaims. Or at least they seem to say that. Uh, my contention is that they don't actually say that. What they actually are speaking about is not in general terms the long-term future, but a particular period of time during which or shortly after they were written. And in order to explain this, it'd be helpful for me to introduce um, a, a hermeneutical or interpretive framework, which is sometimes known as preterism. Uh, so let me explain what preterism is first. And if it's the first time you've heard that um, phrase or that word, uh, don't be frightened, don't be nervous. It's it's not a kind of strange, magic, new way of interpreting the Bible. It's actually, it reflects uh, and, or describes an interpretive framework that we all adopt very frequently in relation to some texts, but, but just not others. Preterist or preterism uh, really simply means that we interpret a particular text to say that though at the time it was written, that text was speaking about the future, the events it was speaking about are now in the past. Just think about that for a second. Um, a preterist interpretation takes a, a text that is future-oriented, a prophetic text, speaking about future events, and says, yeah, this was looking forward in history, but now we're living after the period of time during which the events it foretells uh, took place. 
So what that means is a couple of things straight up. Um, first thing is, uh, none of us are preterists just generally. If anyone says, are you a preterist? Your first question should always be, well, on what texts? Because uh, no nobody can answer the question, are you a preterist, until you tell them uh, what text you're referring to. For example, none of us should be uh, preterists in relation to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, that's about the resurrection of the dead, which certainly hasn't happened yet. None of us should be preterists about texts relating to the final judgment, like the parables of Jesus at the end of Matthew 25 and so on, sheep and the goats, because that hasn't happened yet. There are some actually who are preterists in relation to those texts. That um, is actually a heretical position called hyperpreterism. Its advocates call it full preterism or consistent preterism. Uh, but hyperpreterism is the heretical view that even texts that are talking about such matters as the final judgment and the, um, uh, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting and so on in the new heavens and the new earth in glory, even those texts have been fulfilled. Well, that's not true. Uh, and sometimes um, critics of preterism confuse preterists with hyperpreterists and get in a terrible stew about it. It's another reason not to do theology on the internet, but I digress. Anyway, so the first thing, um, none of us are just preterists, period. Whenever anybody says, are you a preterist? You should always ask, well, on what text? And then that raises the second point, that all of us are preterists on some texts. Some texts were written about events that at the time they were written lay in the future, which we all agree have now taken place in the past. For example, Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering of the servant of the Lord, um, which is fulfilled in events which lay in Isaiah's future but lie in our past. So without even thinking twice, we adopt a preterist reading of Isaiah 53. Same as um, with portions of Psalm 22, for example. I mean, obviously it's, it's David speaking, but um, he's speaking prophetically. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prophetic element of that was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we adopt a preterist reading of that aspect of that text. So just take stock of where we've got to. Uh, none of us are just preterists, period. None of us uh, say every future-oriented text in the Bible has been fulfilled. At least none of us should. Those who do need to be challenged and rebuked and shown the texts in question and encouraged to rethink them. And indeed, I know of some who have. All of us are preterists on some texts. Now, here's the crucial question. Um, what should we make of those texts which I hinted at earlier or uh, briefly mentioned earlier, and actually many others like them, which either say Jesus is coming soon, the church will suffer greatly, the gospel will be opposed, those texts which seem to oppose post-millennial eschatology, what reading should we adopt concerning them? And that question can only be answered by looking carefully at each text individually. What we don't want to do is just say, well, I've got my postman eschatology, so I'm just going to come along and slap a preterist interpretation on all of these texts which seem to conflict with it. That wouldn't be responsible exegesis. The right way round is to approach the Bible, so to speak, with, with uh, not with fresh eyes in the sense of forgetting everything you've ever learned, but with a willingness to be challenged and so, as a number of years ago, I was chewing over these eschatological questions. One set of exegetical questions I had to go through was thinking, well, what about these texts that seem to suggest that 
uh, terrible times in the last days or Jesus is coming soon and such like. Do they challenge post-millennial eschatology? And as I went through them one by one, I discovered to my surprise that actually all of them seem to make more sense if they're understood as referring to events that took place in the first century, shortly after they were written. Those events are sometimes strongly associated with the really significant uh, event that took place after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus in the first century, that is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the overthrow of the old covenant order. But actually not all of these texts are associated so directly with that. They might just be associated with the period of time between roughly 30 AD and roughly 70 AD. Um, but that's a question that needs to be addressed to each of those texts specifically. And really what I'm wanting to encourage you to do um, at the outset, so to speak, is to have an awareness in your mind of this interpretive possibility. Not to bring it as an interpretive framework that you slap on everything just to kind of move these problematic texts out the way. Um, it might be that you, we've got things to learn that, that ought to be heard before we just kind of move on past these texts. But the fact that it's possible to consider whether the, these texts which seem to speak about the imminent future actually are speaking about the imminent future but they're speaking about the imminent future the literally imminent future in the first century that's something that ought to be considered and so what we ought to do really is to go through all of the texts in the new testament which seem to be future oriented or seem to make statements about what could happen in the future and ask ourselves the question well what period of history precisely or what moment of history precisely does this refer to and what implications does it have? That would take us rather a long time. Uh, so I'm not going to do that today. What I'm going to do is just take a couple of examples of each of them and show you um, uh, how and just very, very briefly why it seems to me most likely that these texts ought to be uh, understood as relating to events in the first century. And in some cases, it will be clear that, clearer than others. And so what that will do, hopefully, is it will give you a sense of methodologically how we ought to approach these questions and, and some of the implications of them. Then at the end, um, I'll show you uh, just one final text, uh, text which um, actually highlights uh, an unexpected benefit of being aware of the possibility of this um, interpretive uh, verdict. That is to say, it makes other texts much easier to understand than they otherwise would be. There are one or two texts which I just don't know how you'd understand them at all, um, uh, how you'd fit them into the Bible if it wasn't um, possible to um, see that their specific relevance to the first century only and to the unique situation there. Uh, if they didn't refer to that, I think we'd have huge contradictions in the Bible. So there's um, something to hold out to the end of this podcast for, and I'll, I'll share uh, one or two texts with you that fit into that category. But that all said, um, let's just take a look briefly at one or two texts which say that Jesus is coming soon and ask ourselves what they're referring to. Um, and let's start with Mark 13. This is probably the most well-known text. It's parallel parallel passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Um, this is the uh, famous foretelling of the destruction of the temple. Um, at least that's what it says in the heading in my Bible. Um, but many people who read this chapter uh, regard it as uh, actually prophesying 
uh, not just the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but the end of the world, so to speak, in the final judgment and the, the resurrection of the dead and so on. And the reason they do so is because of the imagery, particularly the imagery of verse 24 through 27. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So there you are, you've got what looks like cosmic disruption to the very fabric of space-time. Um, and when's this going to happen? Well, um, if you look uh, just a couple of verses later, verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what's going on there? You can see how somebody might pick this up and say, look, your um, post-millennial eschatology has got to be wrong hasn't it because you're anticipating a very long delay before the return of Jesus this text says that the return of Jesus is going to happen in this generation we should be ready for it in this generation it could happen very very soon now how are we should respond to this well I've got a couple of responses the first is if that's how you're going to read the text then you've got a contradiction in the bible straight away because if you think that this refers to the uh, some kind of cosmic collapse, which I certainly don't think it does refer to, or the final judgment and the final return of Christ. That actually didn't happen within this generation. Jesus was speaking to his disciples uh, shortly before his crucifixion. So if it's the case that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, and all these things include the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment, then Jesus was mistaken. And it might interest you to know, actually, that some liberal New Testament scholars think that's exactly right. They think that Jesus was mistaken about the time of his own return, uh, and that this is one of the texts where he displays that misunderstanding. So my first hesitancy about um, any reading that says um, that this is about the final judgment and the resurrection of the dead and so on, and it must take place in this generation, is that it just didn't, which is a bit of a problem. Uh, but then we've still got the second issue, which is well, what about all this imagery? The sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from heaven and so on. That sure looks like some fairly major disruption to the way things are. And this is something that um, Pastor Neil and I have spoken about in various different contexts. Most recently in a Wednesday night Bible study in response to a question, Pastor Neil chipped in with a whole bunch of uh, really helpful insights. Uh, this... Um, a portion of the text, like the whole text, draws on Old Testament prophetic imagery to describe not the physical implosion of the cosmos or the last judgment and the resurrection of the dead, but rather the downfall of a king. Uh, in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 31, I think 34, uh, in Daniel 7 and other places, um, you have forgive me no not Daniel 7 Daniel 7 relates to another question um, but certainly in Isaiah bits of Ezekiel um, uh, Haggai chapter 2 and one or two other places especially in the prophets uh, images of stars being darkened Joel chapter 2 um, uh, stars falling and so on are, are used by the prophets to depict the downfall of a pagan king normally a pagan king occasionally it might be a, an israelite king uh, israelite leader but but mostly it's to do with pagan kings like in Isaiah 13 i think it's the king of babylon 
whose downfall is prophesied in association with the sun and the moon and the stars being darkened. And that's characteristic of uh, Old Testament prophecy to use imagery like that. And you can see why, because Genesis 1, the stars are associated with rulers in Genesis 1. Um, the sun and the moon are put in place to rule the day and the night. And so uh, dominion is associated with stars. So you can see how very easily in prophetic imagery a, a star falling from heaven could be used as uh, an image to depict a king being displaced from his throne or a great ruler being brought down. What's shocking here is that imagery which in Isaiah is applied principally to pagan kings, king of Babylon, for example, is here applied to the rulers of Israel herself, God's own old covenant people, will be displaced from their position of preeminence in much the same way as the king of Babylon was. So I don't think it's about um, the end of the space-time universe. I don't think any um, text of scripture speaks of that in the kind of way, you know, the stars falling, literally, physically falling from the heavens and landing in the sea or something. Um, uh, and uh, it's certainly not about the final judgment and the resurrection of the dead. It can't be because that didn't happen within this generation. Um, and the prophetic imagery gives the background much more clearly. Um, you've got something similar, actually, in uh, probably the most famous um, text of scripture uh, that is taken frequently by exegetes to suggest Jesus is coming soon. And that, of course, is the whole of the book of Revelation, which begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then uh, again in um, uh, verse chapter 3, verse 11, uh, it's not the church in Laodicea, I misremembered, it's the church in Philadelphia. I am coming soon. And then right at the end of the book, chapter 27, um, yeah, 27 verse 6, he said to me, the words are trustworthy and true and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 7, and behold, I'm coming soon. So what we've got here is a depiction of uh, events that have extremely great significance for the people of God, which are going to take place soon. Now, what do we do with this? Well, at the outset, um, if you think that the whole of the book of Revelation is all about events of our future, final judgment, resurrection of the dead, and so on, you have the same problem here that our friends have with Mark 13, that you're going to have to find a way of, of explaining how Jesus or John, depending on who's speaking, and here it's mostly Jesus speaking to John, was mistaken about the timing of his own return, because it didn't take place soon. And there's just no way of cutting through this. One or two exegetes try to rephrase or re parse the meaning of soon so that instead of saying literally soon it's like well we are always supposed to be living as though it could take place soon even though technically it's not soon um, I think Thomas Ice is one who's written an article along those lines that's a long time since I read it um, and my response to that is well that's just simply not what the word means soon means soon and there's a very very easy way of resolving that puzzle which is just to recognise that the book of Revelation, actually like Mark 13 and the parallel gospel passages, is filled with uh, imagery and other depictions uh, of the coming downfall of God's old covenant people and the temple order associated with the worship of God in Jerusalem. What you've got here in the background is a, uh, a 
covenant theological structure which we probably should spend a bit of time fleshing out in more detail we won't talk about it now but you've got a familiar pattern where there is a 40 year overlap period between successive eras so one era comes to an end take for example the era in egypt of israel and egypt that era comes to an end and then you have a, a period of 40 years when um, they're not in Egypt, but they're not really in the promised land yet. They're kind of on the way. There's that interim period of a generation. Uh, and then they enter the promised land 40 years later. Well, you've got the same thing, actually, in the first century. You've got the beginning of the end of the old order with the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And then a 40-year period before the end of the end of the old order um, in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. And again, you've got that generation, that interim generation during which you have taking place all the things which are prophetically envisioned in the book of Revelation. Now, uh, there are a good number of exegetes who recognise this um, in the book of Revelation. Um, uh, Peter Lightheart is one, but he's, and he's written a recent two-volume commentary, very fat commentary on Revelation, but he's by far from being the only one, in, in, uh, certainly in studies of um, the book of Revelation. And there are others, actually, who... Um, I should have mentioned this a minute ago, but um, uh, Richard France, R.T. France, in his commentary on Mark and his shorter commentary on Matthew, go into great detail, um, giving a detailed exegetical groundwork that highlights how, um, not just the book of Revelation, Peter Lightheart, but the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13 and Parallels, relate to the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So just step back for a second. That first collection of texts, the Jesus is coming soon or this generation texts, they don't conflict with the um, uh, picture of history set forth by postman eschatology for the simple reason that they're not actually talking about the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment at all. That event didn't come soon. It hasn't even yet happened. They're talking about an event that did take place soon, did take place within this generation, the end of the Old Covenant order um, with the destruction of Jerusalem's temple and the city. So that's that set of texts. Now, let me just press pause again and caution you. Um, don't uh, fall into the temptation of just slapping that interpretive answer on every text that uses the word soon in the New Testament. Um, that it's much more responsible rather to be aware of this as an interpretive possibility and just to take the long-term patient. It might take you months or years to work your way through all, the, all these texts and just to chew them over and think about them. And, and as you do so, the conclusions that you form, because you form them slowly and patiently and carefully, will be much more secure than if you just breathe a huge sigh of relief, jump in, jump in and announce that you're a preterist and few thank goodness I don't have to worry about any challenges to my nice postman eschatology. That's not the way to do biblical studies or theology at all. Uh, it shouldn't unnerve us to be forced to take time to think through these things. So I want to encourage you to do so. So what else then? Well, we've been talking a fair amount about that. So let me try and briefly um, just talk about um, the other couple of categories of texts and then jump in with the extra special one at the end. What about the suffering of the church texts? and the opposition to the gospel texts. Well, the suffering of the church text, just just take one example, which is actually fairly straightforward to, um, uh, to rethink. If you've, if you've followed my um, suggestions in Mark 13 previously, then the part of Mark 13 that says, 
for example, be on your guard, they'll deliver you over to councils, you'll be beaten in synagogues, you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake. Um, uh, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Pentecost, interesting. Um, when they bring you over to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you will say, but um, whatever is given you in that hour, let's say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But it's very tempting just to pick that up and and see it as a depiction of the whole church throughout all history and use it as a tool with which to push back against post-mill eschatology. A couple of comments. I mean, first, um, this isn't a description of the church throughout all of human history. So much of this, praise God, is not actually true of us. It might be true of some of our brothers and sisters at various points in history. And this raises another question about the implications of this way of reading scripture. The fact that we adopt a preterist reading of a particular text doesn't mean it has no relevance for the rest of history. It might well be that there's a period in the first century where the church is persecuted because the powers that are opposed to the church and the gospel are being brought down under the judgment of God, as they were. It might then be the case that at later periods in church history, when the powers who are opposed to the gospel are about to be brought down in judgment under the hand of Christ, at those periods it might be the case that the church is caused to suffer in similar ways. And in fact, um, if we had world enough and time, I'd want to argue that's exactly how we should read history. Um, history rhymes. You get um, eras of history which seem eerily similar to each other. Um, the Lord deals with nations in consistent ways. And so um, having... Uh, establish the referent of this text in the first century we can then see that it may have implications for analogous situations later in history but that doesn't mean it's about those situations it's about the first century how do you know that well because of all the stuff that we've just talked about in relation to mark 13 um, this is one of the uh, great tribulation text verse 19 in those days there will be such tribulation as not as has not been from the beginning of the creation that god created until now and never will be this looks very much like a one-off um, set of events. And we know actually from various historical sources in the first century that there were terrible periods of tribulation for the church. And we actually know this from the book of Acts as well. You see the, the beginnings of it in the early de first decade and a half or so of the church that you see in the book of Acts. So the suffering for the church during the church age, um, this example at least, um, seems to me perfectly reasonable and, and in fact makes a lot more sense to see it as, a, as referring to events in the first century because of what we know about the first century and because of what we know about events since then. I'd want to say similar things um, briefly, those who take a little longer to establish, about let's say Second Timothy uh, chapter 3. There will be terrible times in the last days. Well, last days of what? You wish, whenever you see the phrase the last days you should always ask the last days of what it was my old friend and mentor uh, David Field who um, pointed that obvious fact out to me but it's highly illuminating because it makes you realise yeah we just assumed it was the last days of the era that we're in well what if it was the last days of the previous era like when the text was written in the last days of the old covenant order that Paul was writing to Timothy in 
Again, we'd need to spend a little bit more time um, in that text to establish that that's certainly what it's talking about, but it's certainly a possibility, and being aware of that possibility can be very helpful. One where it's possible to be, uh, I think, a little more certain that it has to be read in this way straight up is the text I mentioned about op opposition to the gospel in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, let me read a bit, bit from this. Um, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, uh, Paul's writing in verse 1, um, he says, let no one deceive you in any way, verse 3. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So many have suggested that this is a kind of generalised um, description of uh, uh, or either what the church's experience will be like generally throughout history or perhaps more likely um, towards the end of this period of history there'll be this tremendous rebellion um, the son of lawlessness will be revealed the son of destruction and so on uh, and therefore it's kind of hard to imagine steady progress of the church and Jesus returning to a world which is uh, welcoming him because the, the man of lawlessness the son of destruction has just established himself as uh, the ruler over uh, certainly over the temple and perhaps over the nations, proclaiming himself to be God, right? So what do we do with this? Well, what precisely is it referring to? Just look with me um, in the bit that I skipped over, and I'll show you. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Well, let's just stop there for a second. Uh, Paul is concerned that the Thessalonians are uh, confused about these matters. And he says, we don't want you to be alarmed by a letter that seems to have come from us telling you that the day of the Lord has come. Don't be alarmed about that. Now, just think for half a second. Um, if Paul were talking about the final judgment and the resurrection of the dead, uh, and the end of this order of things, and the renewal of the heavens and the earth, do you think it's possible that the Thessalonians could be so confused that they would expect to have heard about that from Paul by letter? Well, right. You'd have to, you'd have to credit them with such stupidity. They'd have to be so completely wrong about the nature of the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment, which Paul doesn't seem to think they are, um, that... It's just not a plausible way of reading the text. But it is quite possible that the day of the Lord, to which he's referring, is the day of Jesus coming, as he calls it, um, in judgment on the old covenant order that's become apostate and rebellious against God and rejected their Messiah and is now awaiting um, his judgment. It's perfectly possible to imagine that he's speaking about that because it's not implausible that people in Thessalonica might hear about that by letter. I mean, how else were they going to hear about it? Didn't have the internet, didn't have CNN or whatever it is you rely on. Um, yeah, exactly, uh, for your news. Um, but uh, so in Second Thessalonians 2, in short, I don't think it's at all plausible to think that this is about um, the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment, because I don't think the Thessalonians could possibly be that stupid. So there's uh, three sets of texts which... Um, uh, look to me like um, 
uh, though they might superficially seem to be about this era of history in which we're now living, or the end of this era of history, and therefore be opposed to post-millennial eschatology, actually a close reading highlights they're about events in the first century, and therefore are not opposed to post-millennial eschatology. Now, I promised you one final bonus, didn't I? Um, and if you've got your Bibles, I should have said this earlier, if you've got your Bibles, you probably want to open them for this particular podcast. But um, if you've got them, then um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7, because this is a puzzle for some people. In um, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing questions concerning marriage and various issues about uh, marriage and divorce, and if you have an unbelieving husband, and what about your children, and so on and so forth. Well, what does he say? Um, uh, Concerning the betrothed, verse 25, I just want to read a few verses and then highlight a, a potential puzzle for you, which I think, if it weren't for the possibility of a preacherist interpretation of this text, would be formidably difficult to solve. But a preacherist reading solves very quickly. Concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. If you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I want to spare you that. Okay. On the face of it, those verses seem fairly negative about marriage. It's good for a person to remain as he is. If you're married, okay, stay married. But if you're not married, don't get married. Um, you're not sinning if you do, but frankly, I think it's going to be trouble for you, worldly troubles, uh, and I'd like to spare you that. And it's interesting to read a bit of recent and not so recent church history and observe how this has been taken by some people, including, I mean, some from my own country, from Britain, some well-meaning evangelicals have seen in this a kind of... Uh, model especially for Christian ministry that prizes singleness people would use the phrase single for the gospel and they'd have in mind this sort of text because you know it's good for a person to re remain as he is um, you'll have troubles in this world and I want to spare you this uh, and especially then later verse 32 I want you to be free from anxieties the unmarried man is uh, anxious about the things of the Lord how to please the Lord but the married man is anxious about worldly things how to please his wife and his interests are divided and so there have been many, perhaps many hundreds, even thousands of men who've been uh, in uh, uh, universities and schools who've been discouraged from marrying because, well, your interests will be divided and really you ought to be serving the Lord rather than being devoted to a wife. Well, what the heck do we do with this? Because you search the rest of the scripture in vain for such negative teaching on marriage. Uh, think of Psalm 127, 128, think of Genesis 2 for a start. Um, where uh, marriage is uh, the solution to the first and only thing in God's creation that's not good. Uh, marriage and childbearing are the means by which God's covenant promises are carried forward. Marriage is a tremendous blessing. Have you read the Song of Songs? You know, um, The whole of Scripture sets forth marriage and family life as something which is wonderful. Uh, and um, many married people know this. Uh, many people who aren't married um, can see this and would like to be married and yet here you've got 1 Corinthians 7 saying well don't do it and what are people supposed to do well as I said I know people personally who've been discouraged from marriage by this text so what do we do it seems to me if that's how you read it you have an almost insoluble contradiction in the scriptures but 
and here's a big but, uh, an awareness of the possibility of a preterist reading of this text completely solves the problem. And indeed, there are hints, very strong hints, unavoidable hints, I think, in the text itself that highlight um, that really that's how 1 Corinthians 7 has to be taken. It's not, in other words, that Paul is saying, in general, it's a bad idea to get married. What he's saying is, in these particular circumstances, it's a bad idea to get married. Let me show you where you find it. Just jump back in with me in verse 27. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Well, there's a thought. What's the present distress? Log that question away. We'll come back to it. Those who marry will have troubles in the world, literally. Uh, no, rather, forgive me. I, it, troubles in the flesh. Distress in the flesh. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, present distress. Something terrible is going on now. The time has grown very short. Um, either the distress isn't going to last much longer or um, it's not long until something even worse happens or something like that. Then verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. What could Paul be referring to? Well, you can easily see what some people would think he's referring to. The present form of this world in which we're living is passing away. The last judgment is just around the corner. Don't go get married. What will be the point anyway? Uh, you'll have worldly troubles and your, devotions will, your devotion will be divided. Well, that's not true for all the reasons we've talked about before. This text was written 2,000 years ago and this world hasn't passed away. But that world in which Paul was writing and about which he was speaking most certainly has. It's the world spoken of in Mark 13. And if you turn back there, you discover some very interesting things about people who are married. In these months and years leading up to the terrible events of the destruction of Jerusalem and the invasion by the Roman armies and the burning of the temple, you want to read Josephus or read some other uh, historical accounts of what happened during those months. It was absolutely horrific. Uh, many, many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees. There are accounts of the roads to Jerusalem being lined with the crosses bearing the crucified bodies of people from Jerusalem who were brutally executed by the Romans. Um, what does Paul say? Verse 17. This is Mark 13, verse 17. Um, this is Mark. Did I say Paul? What did Mark say? It marks Mark 13, verse 17. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. Well, why not? I mean, presumably because you don't want to be a nursing mother when the city in which you live or the city near which you live is being invaded by the Romans. You don't want to be uh, fleeing for your life in winter in Jerusalem, up into the hills, carrying your newborn child, which you're very likely to be forced to do if you've just got married which is what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul has in mind the teaching of Jesus from Mark 13. He's not thinking marriage is a bad idea. He's thinking marriage is a bad idea right now if in months, years, maybe weeks, the troubles that are 
prophesied by Jesus in Mark 13 might just come and land like a ton of rocks on the city of Jerusalem and all its surrounding area. And we know that actually the trouble spread throughout the Roman Empire and Jews, uh, whether Christian Jews or non-Christian Jews, were persecuted all over the Roman Empire in those terrible years. You don't want to be in that situation if you can avoid it right now which you would be if you got married. So, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 7, in view of the present distress, it'd be a good idea to remain as he is. Now, if you can't control yourself, Paul will say, okay, go get married. Like, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But uh, if it's possible for you to defer marriage for a year or two, or to, for your circumstances to change, so that you're not... Um, uh, getting married and your wife is newly pregnant with your first child at the point when the destruction of the temple uh, comes up upon Jerusalem, then that would be better because the appointed time has grown very short and the present form of this old covenant world is passing away. That seems to me the only possible way to read 1 Corinthians 7 in a way that doesn't conflict with the whole of the rest of the Bible's teaching about marriage. So what you see then is not just that the awareness of a, the possibility of a preterist reading of these texts um, uh, clarifies and gives depth to texts that might otherwise be seen to push back against post-Maleschatology. Actually, it helps us to understand other texts as well. So in summary, I think what I'd want us to leave you with is the, uh, the uh, to give you a, a sense of the importance of bearing in mind the significance of the cataclysmic events of the first century in your New Testament interpretation. Don't just come along with a preterist mallet and slap everything with it as though everything is a nail. But certainly be aware of the possibility of and the significance of a reading of vast swathes of the New Testament which, which focuses at the very least on the events in the context in which those documents were written and it will illuminate vast swathes of the New Testament for you. The book of Hebrews, particularly, is an obvious example of this, and John Owen's seven-volume commentary on that book is one that you probably want to read at some point, either now or in glory, because uh, he adopts a preterist reading of the text, and rightly so, because um, clearly, um, uh, at the time that the author is writing, the sacrifice is still going on, but they're not going to be going on much longer, and so on and so forth. So anyway, that's enough, I think, um, uh, to whet your appetite and probably inform you a little bit about the significance of uh, preterist readings of New Testament texts for New Testament interpretation in general and for post-maleschatology in particular. Thank you again uh, for bearing with me to the end. Thanks to the tech team for all their wizardry and wondrousness in making this audio audible and video watchable. And uh, I think that'll do for me. God bless you. See you soon. Bye for now.